0: We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil.
1: And following closely behind this car Was this unidentified
2: flying object. And
0: you will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.
2: Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at The Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in West Cork, we investigate stories of mystery, always remaining critical, but never cynical. What you've just heard is a specially commissioned version of the traditional folk song, uh, Lady Franklin's Lament. That is, in fact, my father playing the guitar and my mother doing the vocals. And uh, they are both consummate and professional musicians and perfectionists, and uh, a huge thanks to them. You'll hear a little bit more of that song a little bit later on, and you might hear a, a second Polar song at the end of the episode. In fact, I have something very special planned for the very end of the episode as well, so do stick around. It will also have something to do with our theme, which, of course, this time around is polar horror we're going to be talking about polar expeditions we're going to be talking about the terror we're going to be talking about arthur conan doyle short stories we're going to be talking about hp lovecraft and the mountains of madness basically if it's spooky and cold we're going to cover it in this episode my guest for the episode is the fantastic leanne from the strange ways blog who loves all things terror and all things doomed polar expedition so we're going to be having a great time on this one of something i've wanted to talk about for a very very long time and uh, very pleased to be finally getting the chance to do so now few things to say before we get to the episode and hopefully you enjoyed our recent one about the mummies the mummy fiction and um, I had a great time with that one too I I want to apologize for not mentioning one really obvious and wonderful and fantastic resource if you want to go deeper into that stuff and that is of course the work of Jim Moon on Hypnogoria which is a an extremely long running British horror podcast probably I think the oldest most long-running British horror podcast um, and he does an occasional series about the history of mummies in fiction, and it is probably the most thorough take on this you can get. Uh, the, he's been doing it since about two thousand fifteen, at least, and there are many, many, many episodes tracing the history of um sort of spooky, uh, spooky Victorian obsession with ancient Egyptian curses and mummies going right back hundreds of years so it's well worth your time that is of course Hypnagoria. take a look for their mummy their occasional mummy series also um I re-listened to their series on the mound you know the H.P. Lovecraft short story the mound that he supposedly co-wrote with another writer a woman named Zelia Bishop probably She just gave him a very uh, small skeleton outline of the story and he did most of it himself because it is a very Lovecraftian story. And uh, again, on the same show, Jim Moon does a tremendous series where he reads the whole thing wonderfully and then talks about all of the origins and the meaning of it and really proves himself to be rather a tremendous uh, Lovecraft scholar in his own right. So I've re-listened to that this week and it's making me think maybe I need to do an episode on uh, Edward Bul- Bulwer-Lytton and the coming race and I have some ideas brewing for that, being as I have sort of mysterious underground civilizations on my mind after uh, after taking a trip through the whole mound series uh, one last thing I want to mention is a special thanks to listener Lucy from Devon who sent me in some lovely pictures uh, of her trip to Torquay Museum because wouldn't you know they have some stuff to do with uh, Henry Fawcett my, fam- my favorite uh, mystical explorer who disappeared in the Amazon in 1925 and of course they do why wouldn't they and um, we I don't know. He might get his own episode someday. We'll see if if I have a, if I feel like I have my own particular take on it, I might approach that. Anyway, uh, beer for this episode. Let's getting getting to the important stuff. Is of course a bottle of Expedition Ale from none other than Tom Crean's Brewery over in Kenmare in County Kerry. Tom Crean, of course, uh, one of the most famous. In Ireland, anyway, one of the most famous polar explorers that we've gifted the world. Um, besides people like Ernest Shackleton, probably better known. But um, Tom Crean, uh, you know, did expeditions both north and south. He worked with Shackleton and um, saved the lives of very much far more famous men, shall we say. And um, by all accounts was a bit of a character. And you can go and visit his pub, which he did own, which he called the South Pole, in a town in Kerry called Anaskal, which I still have to do. And that that trip will happen maybe before the end of the summer. And I would like to visit the brewery as well. So with all of that said, I'll just mention my wonderful guest for this episode. So talking with me on this episode about all things cold polar and mysterious is leanne from the strange ways blog Uh, leanne uh, sometimes writes under the name lenny and has been writing on the blog since 2018 and is always happy for the chance to write about things that are interesting mysterious and share those interests with others so i hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we do let's get to the polar horror
1: Well, my name's Leanne, obviously. Um, I write under the name Lenny. Basically, I blog about the supernatural, folklore, weird history and true crime. I, I basically started the blog as a writing exercise because I used to write quite a bit when I was younger and then stopped for various different reasons. And I wanted to get back into writing again but I wanted to write about something that I enjoyed writing about and in a way that I could share those interests with other people.
2: Excellent and I suppose a lot of people started um, you know creative endeavours during Covid as well just to keep busy and or, or you know wrap them up as, as, as the case may be. <laughs>
1: I wish I'd started more during COVID, during the lockdown. It would have been a perfect time to start writing a little bit more, but I just I just stuck to my
2: once-a-month blog. We're here to talk about some <laughs> polar exploration and some, some elements of polar horror. We're going to talk oh, about yeah. historical <laughs> stuff. We're going to dip into some of the fictional versions of it. I think a, a common jumping-off point for, for our interest is uh, The Terror, the, the book and the recent TV show, I was aware of this yeah. um, when it came out in 2017 or 18. It was out in the US and a lot of my friends in North America were telling me, I think you will like this. Um, but it's only recently become easily available in the UK and Ireland. So it's kind of having a second, a second coming amongst people here, um, I think.
1: It was a you could you could you could get it you could get it on streaming, but it, it's bizarre it took them so long to mm-hmm. bring it out on DVD you have only recently. I mean, you can get a DVD, but it's like I've I've got the DVD, but I, th- I think it's a European copy. Um, and obviously, it's all in English, but it 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 weren't like the official English copy of the DVD.
2: I'm sure there are <laughs> a lot of rights issues as well with with different parts of the world, but it was it was oh, great oh, fun yeah. to see. Like, I, I guess I follow a lot of historians online and particularly folks interested in the Victorian era, and they were just losing their shit over the yeah. level of detail in the show. Everyone's, oh, look at the belt yeah. buckles and look at the epaulets it, on the it, uniforms. It and, you know, people who like nautical history were, were just really into yeah.
1: this. It, it's really encouraged people. There's a, there's a couple of people I follow on Twitter who were just so in love with the clothing from the show. That they've started to reproduce stuff like the knitting um the gloves that the men wore like blankie's gloves and the hats yeah the the actual sort of the it's it's quite impressive
2: and have you noticed all all of the other sort of fan paraphernalia like there's there's like dark ambient audio albums being made about the terror yep <laughs> there's all of this fan artwork of the main characters yep. of, of france francis and Josier and all of this kind of like fans taking the characters and kind of yeah you know it, doing it,
1: it's, it's a brilliant <laughs> fandom to be part of everyone it's a very very friendly sort of gentle fandom despite it being about essentially a horror novel. <laughs> yes. And I would
2: never have guessed that this thing would have become a fandom because I re- so I've got my monstrous copy of the book here, the Dan Simmons book from, is it 2007? Oh, and I read this back in, it's it's a beast, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I read this back in about 2012 and I, I'd never heard of the Franklin expedition at the time. This was, despite being a, a lifelong Victorian interest person and um, this was my first entry to it and I had the book on my shelf for a couple maybe six months and I was afraid to go at it because I knew I would enjoy it but it was such an undertaking and it was such I knew it was going to be intense and and hard going and it is but i I absolutely was captivated by it and at the time I was living in surrey and I came back to Cork for Christmas still reading it and then I went I was the first person back in the house in surrey and there was something wrong with the heating. And I was in this big old rambling frozen house
1: country, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: on my own in the Surrey countryside, reading this Arctic horror novel mm-hmm. um, in in not sub zero temperatures. It was still Surrey. But, you know, you know, <laughs> south of English winters can be, you know, reasonably, <laughs> reasonably chilly.
1: Oh, God. Very chilly. Now, the first copy I actually bought of *The Terror*, I couldn't actually read because some I somehow managed to buy the German copy, which I, I still have up on my shelf back there. I, I really probably should get round to selling that on so someone else can actually read it. But I've got I've got the same copy that you've got there, and I I think. It, was, it was, It's a very bizarre experience because you, you're reading a horror novel and it, it, it's 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 very dark and detailed and very, very tense in places. But at the same time, it's kind of like reading a history book.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, the details in it are content. incredible for history, yes. Um, I, so the, the Terror is a, a, light, a fictionalized version of the 1845 Franklin Expedition to find the Northwest Passage through the North Pole. And this was a real-life historical thing. It was a huge, huge, huge um, cause celebre in in the early Victorian times. And there's a lot of mythology built up around the real-life Franklin Expedition. And I, I think the terror is only the latest iteration of the kind of a fascination that the public has always had with Franklin's disappearance, but also with the the sort of weird ideas people have always had about the Poles and this weird supernatural fringe that comes around the stories of polar exploration. And uh, yeah, that's why I, I think the recent success of both the, the book and, and now the TV show are, are provide good jumping off points uh, for talking about this stuff. But what did you think of the TV show? I
1: absolutely loved the TV show. It was... Where it's like you say you've you've got the attention to the detail the not just in the clothing but the ships themselves and it's just so beautifully shot as well I just obviously there's differences between that and the book which is to be expected because they've got a certain amount of time they've got to shoot the tv show in and well like we both acknowledged the, the book is a brick. I think it's probably <laughs> thicker than Stephen King's it.
2: Is, <laughs> so, it's comparable to it. Yeah, uh, and I just want to mention, like some of the, like Jared Harris and Kieran Hines play the two. So, I, I'm I'm going to try and stay away from spoilers here. Uh, what the main thing that Dan Simmons does with the story of the uh, the Franklin expedition is he adds uh, some element of the supernatural in there. I'm not going to exp- I'm not going to explicitly say what yeah, it is. I- um, if, just in case anyone out there hasn't, it's worth experiencing either the book or the, the show, if you haven't already. But the two main commanders of the ship are played by Jared Harris and Kieran Hines, and they're both fantastic. Interestingly, we have a uh, a, a guy from Northern Ireland playing an English captain, and then we have, in, in real life, and then we have a, an English actor playing the Northern Ireland captain. So they are Franklin and Crozier. And um, that, was, that was my favorite part of the show, was the interplay between the two The two gentlemen, because one of them is Franklin, who's like this man of the establishment. He's an he's a an upper class gentleman. He's extremely system. You know, he's a he's an old uh, Arctic hand. And then, yeah, he's old school and he's got the respect. He's got the money. He's got the class. And then uh, Crozier is is from Northern Ireland. So he's a he's not he's never going to quite be as there's something a bit rougher about him. They're, they're hinting that maybe he's a working class guy who somehow got up the chain a little bit. And um, I just they could so easily have made Franklin into just this like nasty toff who hates Crozier. And it's ne- it's never that simple. The, he, no, he's still a man in no, his no. class and he's never going to understand, you know, what Crozier is going through. But I, their relationship was just more complex than that, I felt anyway.
1: The relationship in the TV show is probably more in depth than it is, I think in the book.
2: I think I might agree. Really? Yeah, I thought, I thought the show's actually spent more time on the just how they felt about one another and you've got this situation where Crozier is clearly the better captain, he's got the skills, the men trust him, but Franklin just won't always listen to him because he is just not as not as high class, he's not as he, high he, up in, in the world the of the
1: right thing. He thinks he's right and unfortunately he really isn't. It, it's a case <laughs> of having something to prove
2: yeah and interesting how this this version of franklin is quite common now people see him as like he was a bit of a fool he went out um unprepared he didn't quite appreciate what he's getting into whereas at the time in victorian times because of the the reverence i guess for the class system that was there he was a hero he was a yeah. you know it was the franklin expedition and it was when he went missing everybody was searching for franklin they weren't searching for anybody yeah. else
1: Frank, Franklin and his men it was it was sort of glorified but it was just whenever you see it written about I mean it, it really speaks it whenever you see him written about it's always Franklin, Franklin, Franklin there's, there's no mention of Crozier, there's no mention of Fitzjames, there's no mention of the rest of the crew, it's just Franklin and his crew and I mean yeah there's the thing of looking at him as a bit of a fool but I know he wasn't the first choice of captain for the expedition. Um, in fact, he bless his heart may have actually been the last choice of captain for the expedition. <laughs> Cause everyone else kind of said no, but if they thought he was a fool and they thought he was incompetent, they wouldn't have trusted him in charge of the expedition at
2: all. He was well connected more than he was, you know, the right man for the job. There's
1: I, I have, I've read some theories that it was not just his own connections but also Lady Jane's connections as well.
2: Yes, and she we're going we're going to mention her. So his wife Lady Jane after his disappearance she becomes uh, the instigator of this worldwide search which becomes a global oh, obsession. Yeah. And I'm going to read, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read a bit of a quote from the terror. This is my favorite section. And it's very, it's not, not, no spoilers at all. This is very early on in the book. But to me, this is just a magical bit of foreboding. And this is before they've even left England. And it's when...
1: Frank, (laughs) i think you might
2: know this and this is done quite well in the show as well but i think it's slightly better in the book where franklin is 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 like getting started he's rustling up the funds he's trying to get the support and he comes up against what he calls the arctic council um, who are the older more experienced um batch of uh you know british explorers who've been to the arctic and come back haunted men every one of them (laughs) yeah so (laughs) he says um So Jane in this is Lady Jane, which is his wife, who will become extremely important after his disappearance. But Jane was wrong. The members of the Arctic Council were not Sir John's friends. The Arctic Council, in reality, did not exist. It was an honorary society rather than a real institution, but it was also the most select old boys club in all of England. They'd mingled at the reception, Franklin, his top officers, and the tall Gaunt, grey members of the legendary Arctic Council. To gain membership to the Council, all one had to do was command an expedition to the farthest Arctic North and survive. Viscount Melville, the first notable in the long receiving line that had left Franklin uncharacteristically sweating and tongue tied, was first Lord of the Admiralty and the sponsor of their sponsor, Sir John Barrow. But Melville was not an old Arctic hand. The true Arctic Council legends, most in their 70s, were to the nervous Franklin that night, more like the coven of witches in Macbeth, or like some cluster of grey ghosts than like living men. Every one of these men had preceded Franklin in searching for the passage, and all had returned alive, yet not fully alive. So yeah, I, I that's great foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> And this is fiction, but I mean, he's using the facts basically. So, you know, Dan Simmons's characterization of these people might be up to him and might be up to scrutiny, but um, like he's made, he gives a list of all of these people he considers to be in this Arctic council. And he mentions um, Sir John Barrow, older than God and twice as powerful, the father of serious British Arctic exploration. All others there that night, even the white haired septu- septuagenarians, which is a tough word to say. They were boys. Oh God, yeah. Barrow's <laughs> boys. So I, I do want to say something about uh, John Barrow at some point, but we'll get to that.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. And it's it's, a, it's impossible to talk about the subject without bringing him
2: up. <laughs> well, well, let's let's go there, because I didn't know much about this guy until until recently. And I've been doing a bit of reading for this episode. I'm just looking for my notes on the computer here. So I just want to make sure I get my get my references right here. So I have some papers. Most of this stuff sent to me by Eddie Guimond, friend of the show, who's been on a few times and is good for sending me interesting papers. So Writing the Disaster, Franklin and Frankenstein by Adriana Crescium, who seems to be uh, an authority on this stuff, and also uh, an article called The Sea of Ice and the ICC, the Arctic Frame of Frankenstein, by Janice Cavell. And um, they have a lot to say about Uh, John Barrow but who who was who was this guy and why is he important
1: known as the father of arctic polar exploration he was in charge of so many of the expeditions he was the one who chose the captains he was the one who essentially chose the ships and sent them out with their orders and it it was thanks to the expeditions that he was in charge that he had sort of chosen that they managed to sort of keep chipping chipping away at the arctic and exploring a little bit more each time the the main aim was the northwest passage i would definitely say the franklin expedition is probably the one that failed the most um well if you ignore franklin's overland expedition he didn't have a lot of luck franklin the franklin expedition was actually his last expedition he retired i believe the year they went out
2: john john but, barrow right just yeah be...
1: john barrow yeah not not john franklin not, yeah i
2: mean started. it was his last one too but that's better known i presume <laughs> so, so there's <laughs> a fantastic
1: time and more of just <laughs> but yeah if, if i remember rightly barrow i think i believe it was the year they it was 1845 he actually ended up retiring but I I I think if he hadn't retired, he would have just kept throwing expeditions one after another after another in at the Arctic in an attempt to find Northwest Passage, probably under the guise of finding Franklin. Even even in retirement, he was he was still trying to shape what we knew of polar exploration through writing. He he might not have been able to choose who went out there anymore, but he he did he he tries to do it through writing instead and he wrote sort of several sort of books on I think it was probably more along the lines of how he saw the expert the exploration rather than how it actually was.
2: Yeah I, I think I, I like how you put that because I've read from those articles I mentioned previously and, and also from yeah. Shane McCarriston's book which which we'll get to shortly and um, this idea that John Barrow was instrumental in framing the, the yes. version of Arctic exploration that we now all share, which is that there are these heroic men who go out into the elements and they're noble and it's for science and they're kind of yep. cold and rational and disinterested. And, you know, you know, that was a lot of that was down to Barrow's writing. And as you say, he was very influential through his books. He also had a lot of articles in something called the Quarterly Review, which was, I, I think it was some sort of Tory organ of that came <laughs> out, you know or whatnot but it, it had a lot it had a lot of connections with people from the admiralty so they were getting their opinions out into the public via this this art this magazine this this periodical and a lot a lot of people talking about mary shelley we'll get to frankenstein as well which is another key polar text but uh, she was reading this apparently and um it,
1: it explains why i mean in, in frankenstein it, it, her putting in the reading about it explains why the how she describes the Arctic is just so realistic rather than just turning around and going, yeah, it's a bit snowy and cold here. Um.
2: <laughs> Especially for somebody who'd never been there. And and let's talk about um, Shane McCarrison's book because it's it's called The Spectral Arctic. And one of his kind of points is that Mm, like he's like right you've got this traditional view this kind of John Barrow view of these great explorers and they're going to these remote dangerous places and they're heroic and it's all wonderful and even when they fail spectacularly there's something noble about it. It's
1: heroically done it's a noble failure.
2: Yeah and you've got this you've got this very strong history in British exploration of these noble failures going from Franklin to Shackleton and and even you could even rope in people like Percy Fawcett just because I like to mention him always (laughs) <laughs> but like like Macariston then says let, let's look at it a different way so his book is, is definitely re- revisionist history where he says there's another way of looking at this where we can include women who physically weren't there where we can yeah. include the indigenous people who were often minimizing the stories and he says the arctic also existed as a psychological place as a as a liminal yeah. supernatural place in the in the imagination of the victorian public
1: with with the victorian public i mean you've you've got all these stories coming back from the arctic and really they had basic photography then but it it wasn't like with shackleton or scott where you've got actual photos and actual footage and you 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 look at like the photos and the videos from the shackleton expedition you feel cold just looking at those
2: yeah you can hear you can hear recordings of like sailors singing folk songs and shanties from that yeah. time, like, like Tom Crean, who was a famous Irish explorer on Shackleton's expedition. There's a song about him that they wrote and you can hear it, which makes it feel more real. Whereas you're right, the earlier stuff, it's conveyed to people via, you know, these articles that John Barrow was writing. And, and then, you know, through this, this basically this, this literature, which is overwhelmingly weird and liminal and often supernatural. That was the way people interacted with this space.
1: Yeah. Victorian times, anything that was written about the arctic by anyone who hadn't been there they had to imagine what it was like so it's kind of obviously they'd look into actual descriptions of the arctic but it's it's kind of like looking at the arctic for a very distorted fantastical view
2: i want to mention some of the stuff that uh, they talk about in that book where so after after the franklin ships disappeared the 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 error uh, the Erebus and the terror we should mention their names so the name of the book obviously is a pun on
1: Makes a bit of sense. <laughs>
2: riff on both the book and and like yeah yes. that it's a horror novel I, I presume uh, after they disappear it becomes this huge deal and and it's a mystery that the whole world is fascinated by and uh, what we would now call psychics uh, start writing in from all over the world trying to help and trying to trying to uh, say that oh we have we have the powers or the ability to you know, spectrally visit the Arctic somehow. And I thought that this is interesting to me because I have a huge interest in spiritualism in Victorian times. And this is like pre-spiritualism, just on the border. I think the yeah. first official just, case- Just on the cusp. Yeah. Just on like, the cusp of it. Just on the cusp because the, the, the Fox sisters thing starts in like 1848, I think, in Hydesville in, in upstate. I think it's upstate New York. So, yeah. And in fact, one of the one of the captains who went after Franklin, looking for Franklin- I forget his name. He married Margaret Fox in did, years yeah. after this.
1: Well, <laughs> it's a sort of historically. I've I've heard it. Just, it's a bit of an interesting one because it's described by some people say, "Oh no, 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 he didn't," but some people did. Essentially, they got married married, but the marriage I believe wasn't approved by, of by his family oh. as much. So I I've, I've read in a couple of places that although they were married the family were just like okay we're gonna deny that
2: spiritualism was soon to be huge in britain but at the time it, it i can only imagine it took a little time to come over from the u.s so the language they use kind of in the late 1840s is not they don't call it spiritualism they call it mesmerism which was the preceding yeah. sort of supernatural fad that and Macarson makes a bit he, may, he explains like this it fulfilled maybe a similar function in society it allowed people to explore further than they could in, in physical reality it g- yeah. gave their give their religious inclinations or their sort
1: of like an out of body sort of yeah. experience with religious leanings it, it's not a form of it, it's a it's it's a sort of form of spiritualism but not it's not a form that we see today sort of outside of hypnotists really mm. I suppose you could
2: say I suppose because it doesn't come within the framework of a religion like spiritualism was subsumed by protestantism like it's a subset it's a type of it's if you're a spiritualist you believed in god and the kind of the regular christian setup but you just believed some extra stuff like you could contact the dead and they could talk to you in these specific ways whereas mesmerism was more like like it's it's related to hypnotism i always thought it was a bit older because i know it it starts off with franz anton mesmer in the 1700s but Uh, McCarson makes out like this this was huge in in western europe just before spiritualism comes in so you have all of these this this kind of the 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 stereotypical thing is you have a guy a man who is hypnotizing a young, usually a young woman yep
1: usually a one, young woman some, sometimes like a young boy but usually it's usually women for some reason it's usually more fit in the bill It's usually the bloke and a woman did
2: it make you think of like poltergeist stuff where the focus traditionally is supposed to be a young girl
1: yeah yeah it, it did actually it's got that sort of it's got that sort of edge to it with podcasts it's usually it's, it's a young girl or a teenager sometimes if a, if a if a boy is involved it's usually a young sort of young teenager preteen but that's the sort of Boys that the mesmerists were actually using for that purpose as well, but it is once again it is mostly young girls, and it was always I don't know it was, it was all it was never upper class young ladies. Mm. It was always girls who were considered to be lower class. Usually, the mesmerists made.
2: Yes, yes, <laughs> and Macariston makes the point that they were often taken particularly seriously because it was believed oh somebody from this class couldn't possibly yeah. have this knowledge that they were yeah. so they, they would be projecting their spirit you know around the world or even onto other planets sometimes and giving us this information oh, and, and the you know these upper class yeah. gentlemen would be saying oh there's no way that this poor illiterate maid could possibly know
1: this.
2: or she couldn't have possibly had the imagination to create it and th- I, I thought that was interesting <laughs>
1: But the amount of the ones who were involved in the Franklin expedition and it turned out that the mesmerist who was in charge of them had either been to the Arctic himself or knew someone who'd been to the Arctic himself.
2: Wow. (laughs) Let's talk about... So some of the prominent ones seem to be there was a... A young girl from Bolton named Emma. I think she's just known as Emma today. Yeah. Um. And they called her the CRS of Bolton. Seer, I suppose, was somebody who had like second sight. Um, yeah. And th- that ties into that. They got directly connected with Lady Franklin in the search.
1: Yeah. They. They. I. Th- I think. I think she was one of the ones that they seemed to take most seriously until, obviously. The things she was saying like, oh, yes, Franklin and his crew will come home were proved to be, unfortunately, very, very wrong. It's hard to say what Lady Franklin's faults were when, when her and uh, Sophia were actually looking into the mesmerists because it's hard to say whether she believed in them or whether it was just a hope that somehow these girls were right. And I, I think what didn't help is because they hadn't, because the girls hadn't been proved wrong. It didn't prove didn't prove that they were inco- incorrect.
2: I, I think when people are are really desperate and, and need hope, yeah. you know, we we look for it wherever we can. And I, I think Jesus. we've probably all known people <laughs> who've been who've been in that situation. And um, like there's a lot of conflict. There I, there seems to be a lot of conflicting written material yeah. from her as to how seriously she took because she Macariston makes the case that he thinks that she believed it at the time and that she was having yeah. meetings. With a, I think her handler was was a, a, a he was a surgeon named Haddock and and Haddock was having yeah. meetings with um, people from the Admiralty who were in connection with vehemently denied it because and mm-hmm. that makes me wonder like spiritualism is such a weird thing in Victorian times because it's simultaneously everywhere and all these top people believe it and are practicing it but at the same time yeah. there's something kind of shameful about it and i i can't figure it out i can never quite figure out what it must have been like at the time
1: it may have been i suppose it may have maybe been considered shameful shameful from maybe a religious standpoint Mm -hmm. but i i think really it may have been a case of they wanted to deny that they'd believed in it or been involved in it when it came to, to situations like the franklin expedition because obviously all of the all of the mesmerists all of the clairvoyants were completely wrong in everything that they said and maybe it was a case of
2: embarrassment there's a there's a fabulous map of the arctic circle with all of the places marked where the, the clairvoyants claimed that franklin was and it's just it just it firstly it hammers on like just how many people were doing this and um and secondly just how, how varied their their guesses were yeah. but then people were writing in from all over the world people were writing from australia and america and canada and, and and they were saying like oh let's some you know let's send a pack of arctic arctic wolves with you know letters uh, sewn into their collars and let them oh God, across yeah, the, the tundra as
1: well there was the idea with the dolls which i i i found that quite interesting you had you had uh, victorian ladies they were sewn together with these these dolls with like messages and like directions and stuff like that stuffed into them the idea was that you'd give it to the inuit to give to their children in the hope that some random surviving franklin expedition person would come along and go hang on hang on a minute that doll was made in england yeah (laughs) can i have a closer look
2: I'm going to read a tiny bit from the book here just because I, I like this quote. It kind of brings home the, the absolute mania and obsession with this case and thus the sheer amount of rumours that were going around. So it says, Rumours uh, received at port towns, however bizarre, suddenly gained syndication in the national and international press while travelling objects like messages in bottles raised hopes in morning editions that were dashed by evening editions. Mysterious reports about Franklin circulated uncontrollably including one sent from Hong Kong that gave a strange account of Eskimo vibrating from the Asiatic to the American continent and back again. In 1848, reports from Canada reached the Admiralty claiming that the firing of cannon was heard at the last post on Mackenzie's River, both last winter and the winter before. They were probably signals of distress. Oh, I find that really evocative, you know, these... these I never really
1: understood, I'm I'm assuming when they said I didn't really understand the vibrating uh
2: Yeah, that's a strange you know, quote.
1: I'm I'm assuming they meant maybe teleporting. It, but I, I, yeah,
2: I figured it was some sort kind of supernatural, thing, like, like shamanic yeah. thing. <laughs> but you know, it like when 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 there's a mystery, you know, whether it's whether it's yeah. Percy Fawcett in the Amazon or you know, Malaysian Airlines M three seventy, like we are desperate for any wisp of a yeah of a they clue. Were
1: They were obsessed with it. And I think I think it was literally just a sudden disappearance itself because it was so mysterious. And you had these two ships, which were the most technologically advanced ships of their day. They were meant to be unstoppable which we know is never never a good um way to describe a ship whenever a ship's described as unstoppable something immediately comes along and stops it it's the fact that they just disappeared that they weren't they weren't able to find at least until Ray came along they weren't able to find any decent sign of the men they weren't able to find the ships themselves it's just like they just puffed and up and vanished into thin air so it I think that really sort of Pushed the fascination with it because i I don't in a way i think they just didn't understand how the expedition could have failed
2: because to them almost like a victorian titanic
1: yeah well to them that it was the most advanced expedition that had gone out there and they just but it's so advanced how can it fail sort of thing
2: did you come across the story of um, another clairvoyant story of a family who got in touch with Lady Franklin? And it was it was a family from Northern Ireland, a guy named Coppin, who claimed that his infant daughter, Wheezy Coppin, oh, her amazing. name is Louise Coppin, he, he said that his baby daughter had yeah. died in infancy. She was like three years old and she was returning to the family. So her, his other young yeah. kids could see her around the house. And he believed that she was appearing to him as a ball of light, and that again, yeah. interestingly, it's a it's an like a slightly pre-adolescent girl. It's like a nine or ten-year-old daughter who yeah. is interpreting what the ghost is saying. And somebody like this is just it shows you that this story was everywhere. Somebody said, "Oh, you have connections with a ghost. Ask it about Franklin. Where is Franklin?" Yeah. <laughs> it was just it was just it, the thing to do.
1: Literally, just as a completely unconnected ghost story that this 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 poor man and his family believed that this little and had passed away was haunting them and I I don't think I don't think it ever would have got involved with Franklin at all if someone hadn't turned around and said oh ask her yeah and it's hard to work out whether he was he was making the stuff up himself or whether he genuinely believed that his children could see the ghost and that the kids were making things up
2: but this, this all reminds me of <laughs> Poltergeist stuff it reminds me of and you know the, the cases that have happened relatively recently that you can study and get good data for like like the uh the the Enfields story you know yeah, I, called- I, I feel it's like it's a it's a thing going back and forth between the kid the parent yeah. and, and the investigator usually and and they're sort of you know bouncing off one another so I, I don't know if it's as simple as saying like did he but but he was a he was an important guy he was like a yeah. well-to-do inventor shipbuilder yeah. giant big large company owner so people listened to yeah. him
1: very very down to earth as well I mean he, he had no reason to deliberately lie I don't believe he got any monetary gain from it obviously with the mesmerists they they were doing they had they had monetary gain and it's possible the girls did believe what they were sort of saying, but it's very difficult without sort of.
2: But he, we're, he got in touch with the Admiralty as well, and yeah. I believe in this case, like Lady Franklin, supposedly actually altered uh, the destination for one of the one of the expeditions going out because of stuff that she was being told. Yeah. I, I, believe,
1: I believe it said she actually wanted to go and see them firsthand as well until it was suggested to her that it would maybe not look good if she did turn up.
0: <laughs> Through cruel hardships they mainly stroll their ships on mountains of ice was drove. The Eskimo in his skin canoe was the only one.
2: Some some ghost stories. I, I you've sent on some interesting ideas for uh, ghost stories that are associated with the with the North and South Poles.
1: You've got Robert Scott's hut. People have even to the even to this day people report feeling really uneasy in there, really uncomfortable, feeling other people's presences and hearing voices and footsteps and stuff like that in there. Which once again, I, I suppose that harks back to what. You keep bringing up the poltergeist activity. That's that really hearing things and feeling things, I'd say, is
2: Can I ask a really basic question? Like the
1: yeah where no, is sorry. it?
2: Is is it can you is it a place you can go and see? Or is it
1: um, the only other
2: explorers who go to it? Like how remote is this?
1: Cape Evans. Um so it's near the um, Murdo station. So on Ross Island. So okay. you very probably can actually visit it, I would say, by the looks of it.
2: So that would be a place um, where researchers would spend time.
1: Yeah, researchers, well, they do tours. And it's it's an odd thing to look at, Scott's Heart because it, it, it looks almost exactly as it was when they left it to a degree. You can find other exped- expeditions have used it. Um, but it's it, it looks almost like when it was left there it's it's an interesting thing to look at. it's it's like a museum it's frozen in time sort of thing
2: that was the um, name of a book i had as a kid about the do you, do you remember in in the 80s they found the the frozen bodies of the franklin yes. expedition this was years before they found the ships and there was yeah. a book probably a tv series but we had the book it was called frozen in time
1: i probably I think I might actually have that one up. Yep, frozen in time. It's up there. (laughs) (laughs) I think
2: it was popular back in the day. What other ghost stories do you have?
1: As well as Scott's heart, obviously you've got Shackleton's heart as well, which Edmund Hillary went there and claims to have actually seen Shackleton.
2: No way. Uh, he,
1: He claims that he walked in through the door just in time to see the spirit of Shackleton walking towards him to greet him before disappearing
2: that's fantastic which and like is, hillary was considered like he took an interest in abominable snowman stuff in the in yeah the, and then he deliberately went out looking for it and came back saying no there's nothing to this so he's considered a bit of a buzzkill in some in, yeah. some in some paranormal communities <laughs>
1: which is why it's kind of weird that he would be so dead set that yes i 100 percent saw shackleton it's like okay
2: there's a there's a story associated with shackleton about the the fourth man so during the endurance expedition when you know three guys are making their way across i think it's south Georgia island and this is like the yeah the the endurance expedition is just unbelievable it's just hardship after hardship after hardship and at the lowest point shackleton picks these two guys and he says right we're walking across hundreds of yeah. miles of desolate terrain in, in the vain hope of I reaching this in
1: some cases as well wasn't it I, mm. I believe part of what they went through and they kept getting lost
2: so, so he picks I, well, I, I i can't remember the name of the this is typical chauvinism on my part so shackleton is anglo-irish and he he, he, he travels with tom crean who's a famous irish
1: i, I can't remember what the non-irish guy was Worsley, yeah was like
2: and he he basically he so he says in in a book that he wrote later, I think it was just called South in, in 1919. He writes that, oh, you know, I felt the whole time we were there that there was a fourth presence just walking with us, supporting us. Yeah. And later on I spoke to Worsley and he had written he, he had written this down in his notes also. And I spoke to Crean and he agreed yeah. as well. That's that, great of it as well. Hmm. So to me, this is very reminiscent of. Sort of guardian angel type stories, and if you look at the if you look at the timeline, it's during the First World War. It's kind of like that's when the endurance expedition happened. So you've got the whole angel of yeah. Mons thing, the idea that it you know,
1: fits in quite well, doesn't
2: it? Fits in really well. Like the idea that British military or British explorers are being protected by some kind of supernatural means, and it also fits into there's a real narrative of mountaineer stories where somebody is up on a peak and they think that they see they have a companion helping them out. Yeah. And we it, did it,
1: it comes, it's interesting, it comes up quite a
2: lot. And a lot, I mean some of the same characters show up in these stories, like Edmund Hillary, of course, was more famous for mountaineering. But. So there's there's some great stories, and I, I think continually what we're coming up against here is the the idea that the poles are these mysterious. Uh, empty you know places that just reflect back on you whatever is in your soul whatever your anxieties are yeah. whatever your spiritual mccarston in his book does make a he does use he caution that he, he he's not into conflating the north and south poles and there are, are for reasons of kind of history and colonialism so what he says is i mentioned this briefly he, he just says like this idea that we all have from the age of exploration that these guys were going out into these blank wildernesses these tabula rasa like it's to some degree it's true for the South Pole but it's it's not really fair to say that about the North Pole because of course there were thousands of people living there and a lot of these explorers you know relied on them or survived because of their aid and then they kind of didn't really emphasize that in their writings so like if you if you want to see the North Pole as this empty blank slate you know that is only there for for these you know macho guys to do these macho things you're kind of rewriting history a bit and it, it can be a bit irresponsible. I'm I'm conflating the two in this episode just for time reasons, because I don't want to do a separate episode just for the Antarctic. But in culture, I find them interchangeable often. And the classic example would be, you know, the who goes there, John W. Campbell story, which is set, let me see if I can get this right now, is set in the Antarctic, the first time it's made into a film in the 1950s, it's the thing from another world, and they change it to the North Pole, and then when John Carpenter makes the thing in 1982, it's back at the South Pole, and it makes no <laughs> difference to the plot in yep, any of them. Which is that the way we think about these spaces, rightly or wrongly, and whether it's a leftover colonial thing or not, we don't differentiate between them. Maybe we should. I mean, we should. <laughs> but traditionally we haven't so a lot of the material I'm dealing with for this episode and stories I read growing up didn't necessarily make that differentiation no right there we go there's my disclaimer (laughs) (laughs) Um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about Arthur Conan Doyle so classic addition to the story to the history of spooky uh, northern exploration is uh, the captain of the pole star
1: it's the perfect story For a very cold, quiet night, if you want a decent ghost if you want a good ghost story, it's perfect for it.
2: Yeah, this is lovely. So Conan Doyle obviously wrote, he's famous for Sherlock Holmes, also famous for being a very, very hardcore spiritualist who lectured all around the world and went to bat for fairies and all sorts of weird things.
1: Oh, quite a new fairies, yeah.
2: But he wrote wrote absolutely top drawer ghost stories occasionally. And um, we have an episode coming up about the history of sort of like cursed mummy items which will we'll get into conando quite a bit but i i just have a smaller quote here from the beginning of the captain of the Polestar. star I, I was just thinking like what what's his how does he invoke this mystery spectral arctic so he starts his story by saying september 11th latitude 81 degrees 40 north longitude two degrees east still lying to amid enormous ice fields The one which stretches away to the north of us and to which our ice anchor is attached cannot be smaller than an English county. To the right and left unbroken sheets extend to the horizon. This morning the mate reported that there were signs of pack ice to the southward. Should this form of sufficient thickness to bar our return, we shall be in a position of danger as the food, I hear, is already running somewhat short. It is late in the season and the nights are beginning to reappear. This morning, I saw a star twinkling just over the foreyard, the first since the beginning of May.
1: Describes it perfectly, but then he'd he'd been there. He'd, if I remember right, he it was a surgeon. He worked as a surgeon, wasn't it? He? he worked surgery right, as, yeah. he in surgery. He trained in Edinburgh
2: as a doctor, and one of his first posts was on a was on a I believe it was a whaling ship. So he I mean, knew what he was, was talking. Traveling. And he he said for the rest of his life that his his experience in the far north always stayed with him, and he, he said things like. You know once you've been to the arctic you never forget it it stays with you which
1: you, can, you yeah. can see how it imprinted on people like like ross and people like that who had been there and mm. well franklin and crozier and all of the others you can see can, how it imprinted on doyle
2: to say that i mean he didn't write as far as i know he didn't write loads about the arctic like that's one short mm-hmm. story um but he always maintained that it, it had this kind of hypnotic sp- uh, pl- space in his memory which yeah. I think was very like as we've seen almost everything we've discussed is just, it's about it's about obsession.
1: <laughs> I, th- I think he fell in actually. Is it he slipped? Was it, he slipped on an ice? I think it was him. He slipped on an ice floe and took a bit of a dip once or twice as well. So we're lucky he came back to write Sherlock Holmes. Really. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that story, if anyone is, it has not come across it, is well. I won't spoil it. It's well worth reading. And, and just briefly, it's about a, a ship going into the far north and a, a captain who's haunted by something that he keeps seeing out on the ice. It's
1: one of my all-time favourite. Yeah, haunting is the best way to describe it. It's eerie and haunting. And due to the location, sort of oppressive, I'd say.
2: McCarston hmm. so says something like, like this would fit into... An idea he has about the i think he calls them the polar queens which is the idea that in some of this fiction the arctic is personified as a mysterious woman you know out on the ice and there's uh, there's some colonial stuff and some gender stuff there for sure being as it's all about like guys going into these places and you know forcing their way in and the obsession with
1: Passages. probably
2: poking into areas where they shouldn't sort of thing yeah for sure. <laughs> exactly so uh, but but this story is I, I think fits into that again the idea of something beautiful but fragile something yeah. always just out of reach something mysterious and I think like it's the same with Percy Fawcett and the Amazon you know the places yeah. we can't get to that's always going to be where we place our lost. dreams and our hopes and yeah. Like there's a reason why the Theosophists believe that oh all, all the mysterious stuff is in Tibet. It's because it yep. was hard to get to at the time and it was yep. <laughs> it was considered mysterious. So oh yeah, I love it's, that. It's
1: the not knowing, it's the not knowing what's there that sort of fuels the imagination.
2: Do we want to talk about Frankenstein briefly? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. So what's, what what use does um, Mary Shelley make of the Arctic and Frankenstein?
1: Really, it, it it bookends the story. A bit of a difficult story to tell if you didn't have a suitable place to end. I mean, really, setting in the Arctic, there is no going back. It's like neither of them are going to walk away from that.
2: Yeah, I like I like it, your idea of, like, it has to take place in this ultimate place, this place of no yeah. return. I like that
1: there is there, there is no returning from what Frankenstein has done
2: nice I he, like that yeah
1: can't undo it.
2: <laughs> and he, he's kind of saying you know I followed my ego and I followed I mean like science has a very particular role in that novel it's the very early days of people starting to think kind of rationally or logically or, or whatever as they would have used the words about science and the idea that science is this n- more powerful thing than religion because it can give you results and yeah. frankenstein is like oh i i followed this and it destroyed me don't yeah. be driven to the same because walton i think the name of the captain is he's like trying to push through to the north again to the northwest passage and yeah. it looks like he's probably going to have the same hubris that franklin w- would later have and yeah and, <laughs> and everybody and he's going to k- get all his men killed and the crux of it is like, will he learn from Frankenstein that sometimes yeah, you have it, to turn back?
1: <laughs> if you push the boundaries too much, it is going to backfire on you, and it, it's probably going to backfire disastrously.
2: <laughs> the articles I read about specifically about Frankenstein and and his use of the or Shelley's use of the Arctic is is the, like traditionally it's usually written, oh, she must have been influenced by the voyages of John Barrow because you know that's so his first he sends out his first ships in 1818 but frankenstein's already written up and ready to be published at that time so yeah like some of the writers are looking for earlier earlier versions of this and they're saying right even before barrow like he might have been writing she might have been reading some of his articles before the voyages in stuff like the quarterly review there's some evidence for that but the timeline doesn't quite match up and it seems more likely she was getting her ideas from um, earlier earlier speakers there was there was a, yeah. a lecturer who was trying to plan a, a trip to the um to the arctic on on sled with sled dogs or something that she would have heard about yeah. i think the reason it's important yeah. is that we we trace our modern ideas about this age of arctic exploration directly to Barrow. and prior to that it's a little bit fuzzier like the idea yeah. that oh they've been looking, the british have been looking for the northwest passage since The 1600s. It's a bit of a retcon that Barrow came up. Like Barrow looked back at the earlier voyages and said, "We have always wanted this. We've always needed this. We've been doing it for centuries." I think
1: he was inspired. I think he was inspired by them. To be brutally honest, he was. He was probably inspired by quite a lot of them. But you've got explorers turning up in the Arctic, being like, "Ah, yes, I'm the first person to ever have been here. I am the first (laughs) person to talk to these native people," and the native people just like, "No, you're not." It wasn't a completely unexplored region because we've we've been hunting whales for mm. decades.
2: Mm. So yeah, and again, like it's it's hard to look back and judge these things on their own merits because our way of seeing it is so shaped by the the hero explorer narrative. You know, which which I love myself. <laughs> I, I've, I you know that's that's the way that I took in those stories as a kid, and I am fascinated by them. And I know that it was more complicated than that. But, uh, you know, I right, my, my final section that I've got planned here is to pivot south once again. And um, I think my connection in the pivot will be when we said that wherever is, is, is inaccessible, <clears throat> that's where we place the mystery. That's where we want weird stuff to be. And I'm going to shoot forward a little bit in time to the early 1930s. I've got here my HB Lovecraft omnibus. The uh, main event of which is At the Mountains of Madness. Now, is, is this a, a work you're familiar with?
1: It is, yes. I've got quite a few of uh, <laughs> few books up there on the shelves up there.
2: <laughs> I think this was the first Lovecraft I ever read, and it's a terrible one to start off with, because, like, it, if you think it's going it's to be horror, it's, it's more like... It's it's when he changes. It's like people tend people tend to describe this as like the the un what do they call it? The, the like the demystification of, of the, yeah. the Lovecraft mythos where you know he stops pretending like oh these are like mysterious or supernatural gods. Yeah, like, he's oh. not, they're aliens. It's it's he yep. science fictionalizes his whole universe yep. in this one book, which it's, it, it's
1: definitely it's, like it's one of the longer of his stories of film. It's it's like you say it's less of a horror. I mean, yes, it's sort of Horrific. It's more of a sci-fi, sci-fi novel. Well, novelette.
2: <laughs> and I, I actually I am gonna spoil this one because it's impossible to talk about what's important about it yeah. without doing so. But this is it's mostly an exploration novel. It's it's like a Victorian adventure fiction with with horror undertones. And it's about a yeah. an expedition to the Antarctic from the fictional Miskatonic University. And they have all top of the line stuff. They have these two purpose built aeroplanes and they have this fancy new drill that they're going to use to, I think it's mostly a geological expedition. Um, but instead, they discover things man was not meant to know. <laughs> and there it's are all down there. precursors to what we would now know as the sort of ancient aliens uh, myth. Yeah, and that's, yeah, so we're in kind of Jason Colavito territory here, who's written most authoritatively about the connection between lovecraft and similar pulp writers of the time the 30s and how those ideas transferred into what we now recognize as like the post von daniken alien uh, ancient alien stuff but there's there's i have, I have an article here that eddie Demont wrote called at the mountains of mars which is really good and he just kind of traces the, the the ideas that went into this novel that what would lovecraft have been influenced by when he wrote this a lot of it is you know expert exp- exploration stories from from you know 20s 10s 1900s and um a lot of a lot of fiction from interplanetary fiction so he makes connections yeah. between traveling to an inhospitable place like the arctic and traveling to an inhospitable place like mars and yeah and the idea that you go somewhere and you find these you don't find any living creatures but you find the remains or the ruins of some ancient city and you realize <laughs> they were here before us and maybe they had a hand in our evolution too
1: (laughs) i mean in in a way like harking back to the victorians to them polar exploration was what space exploration was to people in the 1950s and i I think in a way looking at how looking at how lovecraft actually looked at things it's almost like a crossing point you've you've like you say you've got your your space influence you've got your sci-fi influences but you've also it's set here on earth so it's you're beginning to sort of get a bit of a crossover
2: point going on there yeah 100 and eddie gimon points out in this essay that lovecraft apparently we, we're not 100 sure about this but there are letters to show that he he was intending to write an interplanetary story and he says explorers will go to some remote planet and they will find no living beings but they'll find an ancient city with cyclopean ruins and all that and very shortly after he writes at the mountains of madness where all that stuff happens yep. but it happens in, in the antarctic
1: <laughs> it's, it's almost like a probably like a like a prequel to maybe what he had planned but that's back when he's sort of this they're, they're not aliens at that point it's like yeah
2: yeah it's not quite con. reached that point yeah <laughs> yeah i'm going to indulge myself once again and do a few quotes because man, you can't go wrong with some big steaming chunks of lovecraft <laughs> 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 they're always fun to read so how does he characterize the the alien world of the antarctic and given that he he, he seems to have had a fairly well um recorded fear of the cold like he hated
1: it's bizarre it, it's bizarre. He's, he's like like you say it's well recorded he hated the cold yet at the same time i have i've i've read that he had a fascination mm. with like arctic exploration mm. in a way
2: yeah i mean so he was he was, he was into all the current science of his day, uh, astronomy yeah. and, and, and geology, and there's tons of geology in this, and there's tons of 1930s taxonomic zoological stuff, which I really loved. That's <laughs> really nerdy. So he writes, As we left the inhabited world behind, the sun sank lower and lower in the north and stayed longer and longer above the horizon each day. At about 62 degrees south latitude, We sighted our first icebergs, table-like objects with vertical sides, and just before reaching the Antarctic Circle, which we crossed on 20th October, with appropriately quaint ceremonies, we were considerably troubled with field ice. The falling temperature bothered me considerably after our long voyage through the tropics, but I tried to brace up for the worse rigours to come. On many occasions, the curious atmospheric effects enchanted me vastly These including a strikingly vivid mirage, the first I had ever seen, in which distant bergs became the battlements of unimaginable cosmic castles. Yeah, that's nice. Love it. And then a little bit later he writes, great barren peaks of mystery loomed up constantly against the west as the low northern sun of noon or the still lower horizon grazing southern sun of midnight poured its hazy reddish rays over the white snow. Uh, Through the desolate summits swept raging intermittent gusts of the terrible Antarctic wind, whose cadences sometimes held vague suggestions of a wild and half-sentient musical piping, with notes extending over a wide range, and which, for some subconscious mnemonic reason, seemed to me disquieting and even dimly terrible. Something about the scene reminded me of the strange and disturbing Asian paintings of Nicholas Roerich, and of the still stranger and more disturbing descriptions of the evilly fabled Plateau of Leng, which occurred in the dreaded Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al <laughs> <laughs> I was rather sorry later on that I had ever looked into that monstrous book at the college library. um he's
1: never you kind of get the feeling it's the rite of passage don't you go into uh, Miskatonic
2: you just just, just read the book (laughs) it doesn't seem that hard to get a hold of it's like like these guys are um these guys are like they're not even archaeologists they're like uh, scientists they're um uh, paleontologists and geologists but they've all read it
1: (laughs) it's like these it's like this terrible terrible time but you know you can just nip down to the library and have a read (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> but he was never a man who was afraid to reference his own his own work so there's loads of stuff here like he the the, the mad piping is is basically another old one that he's referencing uh the necronomicon office. nicholas roerich i looked up um when i was years ago and i read this first because i'd never heard of him he was You look him up on wikipedia folks he's absolutely mad he had he was a russian uh, he was a russian painter and mystic and mountaineer and traveler who traveled around Central Asia and Tibet, you know, looking for mystical magic and doing paintings of the, the mountains of the Himalayas. And then he, he wound up, like, living in America and being a bit of a hit on the New York art scene. And Lovecraft, like, went to see his paintings when he lived in New York. <laughs> I we love how he references that. this stuff as if well, everybody knows, you know, everybody knows who this guy is.
1: I always assumed it was a one well, I always assumed it was a character that he was making up for the story, but then just never got a chance to use in anything else. Because sometimes in his stories he'll reference other characters.
2: And that's a trick that he does. He mixes and matches like real real books and real authors and real historians yeah. and real with the the fictional stuff. So he'll 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 mention a real painter or a real mystic and then he'll drop, you yeah. know, Abdul al-Azred in next to him.
1: <laughs> yeah. You're you're never entirely sure who's who's real and who's made up unless like it's a really obvious unless it's someone who's like really sort of someone you already knew. But I I didn't know that with that painter. That's fascinating. I'm gonna have to look that up.
2: Yeah, it's worth worth looking at his pictures because Lovecraft mentions him about ten times in this book, <laughs> uh, and, and he's never he he's also always very keen to let you know who he's read, like what his influences are. You never have to worry about his influences. Firstly, because he wrote he wrote a fantastic essay called supernatural horror in fiction which is like as good a rundown of weird fiction as you're going to get from the 1920s yeah and and it's a great it's a great list of things to read but he also mentions them in his fiction so he says that they're actually at the, the 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 terror and the erebus uh, are the also the names of two volcanoes in in the antarctic yeah The ships were named after the volcanoes, or the volcanoes were named? I
1: think the volcanoes were actually named after the ships.
2: So he writes, puffs of smoke from Erebus came intermittently, and one of the graduate students, a brilliant young fellow named Danforth, pointed out what looked like lava on the snowy slope, remarking that this mountain, discovered in 1840, had undoubtedly been the source of Poe's image, when he wrote seven years later, the lavas that relentlessly roll, their sulfurous currents down Yannick, in the ultimate climbs of the pole that groan as they roll down Mount Yannick in the realms of the boreal pole. Vanforth was a great reader of bizarre material and had talked a good deal of Poe. I was only interested myself because of the Antarctic scene of Poe's only long story, the disturbing and enigmatical Arthur Gordon Pym. On the barren shore and on the lofty ice barrier in the background, myriads of grotesque penguins squawked and flapped their fins while many fat seals were visible on the water Uh, Swimming or sprawling across large cakes of slowly drifting ice. Nice. So
1: dropping coral powder. I did read
2: (laughs) him when I was a kid. Like how, like Lovecraft, to just oh, by the way, one of the graduate students is a fan of you know historical weird fiction. And (laughs) coincidence, we've got historical weird fiction in historical weird fiction. Everybody in his books like reads the same things that he does. I love it. Um, I, so Earth Gordon Pym is a weird book, and it again, it involves sort of Antarctic exploration. It, it just,
1: it's a bit of an odd one, because it, it starts off, really, from what I remember from when I read it, it, it starts off as just like almost like a normal adventure book. And then it as it goes on, it just starts to get stranger and, str- <laughs> and stranger as it goes on. <laughs>
2: And he he makes his way like it starts off a bit like Moby Dick or something like he's in the tropics and he or he's I think the full name is like Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. So he starts up in New England and he's he's on a ship and there's pirates and and, um, mutinies and stuff. And he makes his way towards the tropics. And as he gets closer to to the pole, it gets stranger and it ends on this like utterly ambiguous, ambiguous note so coming to the end of the show for time reasons is out of all the stuff we have talked about or like is there any is there any book or show or something that you might recommend to folks who are interested in this stuff like out of all the things you've talked about what is worth checking out reading or watching definitely
1: definitely the terror both sort of the the show and the book obviously because you, it, it's inter- no spoilers but there's differences between the two and it, it's it's kind of fascinating seeing the differences between the two but you are gonna have to prepare yourself for the fact that like like we said the book is huge um but it, it kind of reads a bit like a history book obviously the spectral spectral arctics it's a fascinating it's a fascinating read I believe there's a more recent biography being brought out about Captain Crozier, who obviously was lost on the Franklin expedition.
2: That's perfect. Those are wonderful recommendations. Uh, Where can people find your work online?
1: My blog is called The Strange Ways, and you can find me on there. I try to post monthly. It's thestrangeways.co.uk, or you can find me on Twitter under at lwall 54 five four four five one five five two of all things
2: definitely, um definitely not a bot <laughs> thanks,
1: thanks for that one twitter um it really did make me sound like a bot didn't it when it, when it went for that one. Oh, honestly it makes you wonder how many other walls there are out there but yep you can find me on the strangeways.co.uk and my last post was about sleep paralysis. Uh, my next post hopefully will be about the dolls that were found up in the mountains up in Scotland, the little mysterious coffin dolls that were found up there. That sounds good. Which I would quite interesting. Excellent.
2: Right. Thank you so much for speaking with us. We covered a lot of things. And that is about it for this episode, folks. Huge, huge, huge thanks to Leanne for coming on the show and talking with us about this topic. And as always, the usual things apply. You can support the show over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash atlantic. And that's a nice, no strings attached way to say that you've enjoyed the episode. You can also get in touch over on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland or Instagram where we are Wide Atlantic Weird podcast. Now before we are played out a note on the music in this episode. The 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 folk song Lady Franklin's Lament as far as I know is an actual Victorian era a uh, ballad like a broadsheet ballad which i think means that people would have been selling them uh, on the street as a piece of sheet music that you could buy and then learn the song by playing it on the piano probably that way um, and i first came across that from my mother that christmas years ago when i came back to cork all excited about the terror and talking non-stop about it and uh, she remembered that song from uh, i think from her own childhood so it was one that was well known in ireland uh several years ago many years ago perhaps interestingly from what i've looked up about it it seems to have been regarded as a an actual uh, kind of a popular folk song in ireland and in scotland and some parts of canada but not in england which is interesting to me i would have guessed that england was the center of franklin mania at the time uh, but that's what i've read if anyone out there knows better if anyone is a folk music historian type and you know more please do get in touch Uh, and to finish things off i have something else a little bit unusual this is my own (laughs) attempt to have a bit of fun with a classic folk song also related to polar explorations and uh, with great apologies to the To the late, great Stan Rogers, who I'm not even attempting to do it in his magnificent style. Great fellow, if you don't know anything about him, well worth looking up. And uh, the first time I ever heard this song, made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Maybe it'll do the same for you, but for different reasons, I don't know. once again, special thanks to my folks for doing all the good stuff here, playing... Uh, bass guitar and mandolin and um, all the other good stuff and i'm doing all the really hard work on the harmonies okay so until next time folks as always stay safe and thanks for listening this is northwest passage for just one time i would take the northwest passage to find the hand of franklin reaching for the beaufort sea Tracing one warm line, through a land so wild and savage, And make a northwest passage to the sea. Westward from the Davis Strait, tis there t'was it light, The sea route to the Orient, for which so many died. Seeking gold and glory, leaving weathered broken bones, and a long forgotten lonely can of stones. Oh for just, just one time I would take the northwest, northwest passage to find them the Franklin, Franklin region for the Beaufort Sea, tracing one warm light, through a land so wild and savage. And make a Northwest Passage to the sea. Three centuries thereafter, I take passage overland, in the footsteps of brave Kelso oh, where his sea of flowers began. Watching cities rise before me, then behind me sink again. This tardiest explorer driving hard across the plain. For just one time I would take the Northwest Passage To find the land of Franklin region for the Beaufort Sea Tracing one warm line Through a land so wild and savage And make a Northwest Passage to the sea How then am I so different From the First Men through this way? Like them I left a settled life, I threw it all away. To seek a Northwest Passage, at the call of many men. To find there but the road back home again. Ah, for just one time, I would take the Northwest Passage. And find the of Franklin, reaching for the Beaufort Sea Tracing one warm line, through a land so wild and savage And make a Northwest Passage to the sea
0: And make a Northwest Passage to the sea